Coming up on The Exam Room. The dairy industry, needless to say, is a huge commercial entity and they've been like all businesses, they try to find reasons to promote their products and drink milk for strong bones was one that has been there. We've all grown up with it. So uh, Saruchi Mishra and Eric Ding and other researchers got together and looked at all the evidence that they could find. And they came up with 13 studies that have addressed this issue directly. The biggest data set on this that's ever been uh, accumulated and the most up-to-date one. And what they found was exactly the opposite. Looking at uh, more than a half a million people in all these studies, they found that the more milk you drink, the higher the risk of hip fractures. So in other words, drinking milk was not protective at all. It was just the opposite. Higher milk intake was associated with more bone breaks. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Madison, Wisconsin, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and Dubai in the UAE. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 80 of season 6, number 476 overall. You drink milk, you get strong bones. You eat cheese, you get strong bones. Indeed, dairy is dynamite for strong bones. Or so they say. My guest today says, actually, not so fast. You heard from him already because the math with those ideas just doesn't add up. Dr. Neil Barnard is our guest on the exam room live this week and he and I will be going through a major study looking at what happens to your risk of breaking bones when you do drink all that milk and you eat all that dairy. And in the case of this study, we will be looking specifically at hip fractures. And this is a really big study, too. We're talking about a study of nearly a half million adults. How much they consumed, what type of dairy it was, and how both the type and quantity affects the risk of breaking your hip. So we're going to be looking at milk and then also yogurt and fermented milk and cheese. And it's really interesting kind of how the risk actually varies a little bit from each type. Plus, because it's the exam room live, you know we're gonna be opening up the doctor's mailbag and answering questions from exam roomies. We had a question from Moj who was wondering about cottage cheese in particular. Rich, wondering about a vegan option for kefir. Viv was checking in about Greek yogurt. Marlin asking about calcium carbonate that's found in a lot of almond milks that you buy in the store. Rack had a question about calcium supplements and gallstones. And then we also get into a little bit on prebiotics and a lot of other questions too. So coming up in just about 30 seconds, we're gonna be doing the body good with Dr. Barnard. Today's episode of The Exam Room Live is powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. 
The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit them online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Great to see you, my friend. Great to see you, Chuck. You know, we've been talking about this. It seems like since the show began six seasons ago, dairy and the risk of breaking a bone. You know, we've always been told as little kids, you drink your milk, you're not going to break a bone unless you're out there playing a sport on the schoolyard or something like that. Um, You guys went in there with this study and you looked at, well, really, let's see if we can pull some data to back up those claims. You found that that's not true at all. What do we know about the risk of dairy and fractures, my friend? Well, it's really an important question. Uh, the dairy industry, needless to say, is a huge commercial entity, and they've been like like all businesses. They try to find reasons to promote their products, and and drink milk for strong bones was was one that has been there. We've all grown up with it. Um, with regard to kids growing up, it was pretty clear uh, quite a number of years ago that drinking more milk would not create better bone integrity for a kid who's 16, 17, 18. And so the dairy industry said, well, that's not really our goal. Our goal is to make sure you have strong bones so that you don't have a hip fracture near the end of life when you're older, that you're, you're banking a lot of calcium. So uh, Saruchi Mishra and Eric Ding and other researchers got together and looked at all the evidence that they could find. And uh, they came up with 13 studies that have addressed this issue directly, the biggest data set on this that's ever been uh, accumulated in the most up-to-date one. And what they found was exactly the opposite. Looking at uh, more than a half a million people in all these studies, they found that the more milk you drink, the higher the risk of hip fractures. And it went up and up and up until you got to about maybe two cups a day. And after that point, it wasn't really going up so much, but it was still worse than a person who never drinks milk at all. So in other words, drinking milk was not protective at all. It was just the opposite. Higher milk intake was associated with more bone breaks. Very interesting. Now, with this study, the title of which Dairy Intake and the Risk of Hip Fracture in a Prospective Cohort Study, you looked at close to 500,000 adults all told with all of these studies that were pulled. Um, I'm curious, why hip fractures specifically here? Hip fractures are the ones that really can destroy a person's life. You can break a wrist, you know, you can can have vertebral fractures and so forth, but hip fractures are the ones that land people in the hospital and are associated with mortality. So that's why the the researchers wanted to zero in on hip fracture. All right. So at the beginning, you were talking about the more milk you drink or the more milk you consume, about two cups a day, and then it kind of plateaus, as you were saying. Um, What about if somebody were consuming the dairy through cheese or yogurt, something like that? What is the effect there? There, uh, the, the data are different in a couple of respects. We have far fewer studies, and regrettably, the studies are not uh, adjusted for socioeconomic status. And you actually see what looks like a protective effect for people eating cheese or uh, fermented milk, uh, these kinds of things. There seemed uh, yogurt, for example. There seemed to be a slight protective effect. It wasn't huge, and the best um, interpretation of that seemed to be you're just seeing effect of richer people tend to have better health and are the ones who are able to buy yogurt and cheese. 
So do you think that if the the studies were to be redone and perhaps take socioeconomics into account, we might see a little bit different outcome there? That's what we're speculating. Uh, you'd have to do the data to really be sure. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, man. So th this is this is just fascinating to me. Let's dive into the numbers here. Um, the milk studies. So we're talking about fluid milk here. Um, looked at, I believe, 11 studies in total here. Uh, one found that milk put them at a substantially higher risk. Seven found no association. Three found, I believe, a lower risk. Am I interpreting that data correctly? Yeah, exactly right. And what they did in this study is you're doing a meta-analysis where you try to find what's the truth. Is the truth that milk is protective? Um, if it seems protective, is that because of the way the milk is treated or is it something about the research, way the research was done? In others, milk seemed to be a problem. And why would that be? And so you try, try to combine all the data to get from many different votes, if you will, what's the truth? And the truth seems to be, according to this, that milk is associated with with, with hip fractures in particular. And I'm, I'm curious, were they looking at the specific type of milk? Was it whole milk? Was it 2%? Was it skim milk? Was that taken into account? Yeah, um, and, and you, can look at, you can look at all types of milk, but what was the biggest difference here, surprisingly enough, was probably geography. Because in the United States, if you look at, at cohorts, uh, groups of popula uh, populations in the United States, there seemed to have been, in some of the studies, a protective effect more milk that you're drinking, your bones seem to do better. And in Europe, not so. So the question was, is there something different about the milk? And there is. In the United States, all milk products have added vitamin D. Vitamin D is something that, that causes your body to absorb calcium more effectively, and you could argue that it's gonna help your bones. In Europe, not the case. And so what we were wondering is could the protective effect that seemed to be there for some of the American studies be the result of the vitamin D and have nothing to do with the milk at all? And that's uh, one of the big uh, interpretations of this study. Interesting. And so then I also wonder then, going back to the yogurt and the fermented cheese, uh, the regular cheese, uh, those milks that are used to make those, do we know whether or not those have been fortified at all with vitamin D? Could that be a factor there? Uh, typically not. Typically not. Uh, but on the other hand, these are products that are more expensive um, and that do seem to align with socioeconomic status. And so that was the, the main interpret interpretation there. I should say in any of these studies, you're always trying to make your best uh, assessment of the data. And so the, it does leave some open questions. But what this data set does now is it says, based on all the data that we've got, and the, the uh, even including data that has not yet been published, that uh, those scientists knew was out there, bringing all of this together, what's your best assessment based on what you know now? And what we're, uh, looking at is that milk is not protective and is probably harmful. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, then if, if vitamin D is a factor here and that perhaps has that beneficial protective effect, as is one of the hypotheses being floated, um, would then, could we hypothesize, or at least maybe it's worth looking at, that that same vitamin D that is also used to supplement non-dairy milk could also be uh, protective, whether you're drinking soy, almond, cashew milk, whatever the case? or just taking a vitamin D supplement, or, or, just going, or just going out and getting some sun. In fact, that's one of the things that got people going down this direction a long time ago, was that they noticed that people nearer the equator 
had better health indices in a variety of ways, including fewer fractures. And so the idea is, okay, near the equator, you've got sun much more predictably than you have in North Dakota. And uh, so that led people to wanting to look at the food sources of vitamin D to see if it would be the same. All right, let's go back to cheese here for a second. There's a line in the study that caught my attention. Um, it said, a seemingly protective association with cheese may be surprising, particularly given that cheese is high in sodium, a micronutrient strongly associated with loss of bone density. That to me stood out. Uh, how does sodium erode bone density? Let's start there. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, salt is used in huge amounts in making cheese. And that's for, for two reasons. One is when you introduce the bacterial cultures into the milk to make, to have the, the cheese formed, the ferment, fermentation is, is there. When you introduce the bacteria, you want to keep them from going too far and fermenting it too long. And so adding salt stops the fermentation at the right point in the cheese making. And also people just like the salty flavor. So you consume that, what happens? The, the sodium acts at the kidney to cause your body to lose calcium. So this is a, a big issue because from dairy products in general, although they're calcium rich, only about a third of the calcium in the dairy is absorbed at all. The other two thirds just stay in the digestive tract and are flushed down the toilet. Only about a third is absorbed. But then when you get to the kidney, if there's a lot of sodium in your diet too, as in the case of cheese, that calcium goes from the blood into the urine and is peed out. So you're losing calcium. So that's one of the big concerns. So then that raised the question, well, in these, in these few studies that looked at it, why would cheese be protective? And so socioeconomic status uh, con, uh, confounder was the best explanation the researchers could come up with. All right, so this is kind of a, a silly question, but I'm wondering like, what types of cheese might they be looking at? Or, and, and could this study somewhere have also included American cheese, which if you look at it, you know, will tell you it's not even really cheese. It's a dairy substance or something like that. That's clearly labeled on the packaging. Is that Velveeta? Any of those, do you know, were they included in any of the studies that were being analyzed here? Yeah, there, there's a huge range. Um, and cheeses run from the watery cheeses like cottage cheese to the very hard, hard cheeses like cheddar cheese. And those that are, are sort of mixtures and, um, uh, like uh, American cheese or Velveeta, that kind of thing. They, they vary in a number of respects. Uh, they vary in their calcium intake, calcium content. Um, they also vary in their salt content. We were talking about that. If you took some um, Edom, for example, it's got about 500 milligrams of sodium in two, a two ounce serving. That's way more than potato chips. But if you took Velveeta, it's not 500, it's 800. Uh, if you took cheddar, it's down to 350. So they're, they're all a little bit different but none of them is really your nutritional friend. All right, and this we're talking about a study here, let's be precise, 4,800, uh, I'm sorry, 486,950 adults. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of data from a lot of people. Right. Um, would I be correct in assuming that these are people that have a pretty wide age range, have varied uh, backgrounds? Like who are these people that were included in these studies? Uh, you're right, uh, they had quite a right wide range demographic range, and that's because some were from, many from, were from the U.S., many were from Europe, some were from uh, other countries as well. Um, and so they come from different cultures, and milk has had some different qualities, as we mentioned. So the researchers tried to take all those things into account. The other thing is if you're going to measure hip fractures, you don't want to have kids in the study because they're not breaking their hips. You want to have people who are prone to that. 
So you want you want to skew toward an older population. That's what these studies tend to do. Or, or you'll start with a population, like the nurses' health study, for example, where they started out at uh, one of the Harvard cohorts, a very well done study. You start with women who are younger, but you follow them for a really long time until they get to the, the age where hip fractures might be more likely to occur. And and let's kind of, I mean, let, let's just real talk this here for a second, Dr. Barnard. I have uh, up here in front of me on Google, I just Googled dairy hip fracture study and looking to see if anything that we were talking about today has gotten picked up. And it has in a few places. But then also included in these results are a whole bunch of other studies that, you know, they really run the spectrum, you know, that say milk, very good for bones. Um, which is better, the dairy, the calcium, the vitamin D. Uh, even popped up the vegetarians may have a higher risk for having a hip fracture. I mean, we're just seeing, again, like so many of these other nutrition studies that we talk about, it just seems like there's just such a large amount of contradictory data out there. And again, that brings me back to the question of how can we trust the quality of data in these particular studies? And how can we determine whether something is truly being agenda driven or if it's unbiased i feel your pain it's it's impossible for the consumer to know and there's a reason why these things are coming up now in fact just last week the dietary guidelines advisory committee uh, was open to public comment which is the time when businesses and doctors and dietitians and other individuals can comment on what the dietary guidelines should say and the dairy industry is there in force and they know that that date is coming so in advance of that, they do lots of press releases to say you want, you need to get the calcium from dairy. They don't talk about the calcium in broccoli. They're talking about the calcium in dairy products and they make their best case. And you'll see also press releases from the egg industry and the meat industry and so forth. They're, they're very vigorous right around this time of year to try to make sure that their products are front and center in people's consciousness, whether or not there's any good science behind it. One more uh, quick little housekeeping question here before we open up the doctor's mailbag. We talked about this being a little bit over two cups a day of milk that uh, was included here for the study. But in terms of the cheese, the fermented dairy and the yogurt, how much were we talking about in terms of daily consumption? You're talking about a typical serving, which would be the equivalent of something like two ounces or something like that. Um, and if, if, if a person has more than that, that's, that's probably a bit more than average. That a person would have, and a two-ounce serving would be the amount that would go on a sandwich, uh, in, if it's a re reasonably generous and non-negligible serving. All right, and silly question, but I mean, it it's listed as fermented milk, and I have never in my entire life gone to any store anywhere in the world and seen fermented milk on a store shelf. What in the world is fermented milk? I'm sure there are some people who <laughs> are wondering. Uh, fermented milk is not really a big American thing, or at least it wasn't until fairly recently, but you'll find it now uh, in some of the health food places, and uh, you'll hear people talk about kefir. Kefir, K-E-F-I-R, is a, is a European tradition uh, that some people come up with, uh, where they would take milk, typically from a cow, but it could be from a goat or a sheep, and you add bacterial cultures and grains to it, and you get this funky tasting uh, drink that's that where the milk is fermented. So it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like liquid yogurt. All right. To that end, let's open up the doctor's mailbag. Take a question from Rich, who's wondering whether or not there could be a vegetarian alternative to kefir. 
You could, if you wanted to, uh, I'm not recommending this, but you could go online, you could go to Amazon or other places, and you can buy the cultures. And it's a uh, bacterial culture, but it's mixed with grains. And you can dump it in cow's milk, which is the traditional way, but you could put it also in a plant milk. You can put it in soy milk. Um, and yes, you can get totally vegan kefir. Uh, kefir has also been noted, uh, Dr. Barnard, for having uh, prebiotic effects. So when we're talking about getting prebiotics that don't have dairy, what might a person want to turn to there other than the uh, dairy-free version of kefir you were just talking about? Okay, at the risk of breaking everybody's heart, I'm going to say you do not need prebiotics. Now, that's a surprising thing because so many people are going to the health food store and they're getting yogurt uh, or they're getting prebiotic pills. And prebiotics is just a clever word for bacteria. And the bacteria in your digestive tract can either be healthy bacteria or not so healthy bacteria. And so people will buy yogurt because it's milk with some bacteria shoveled in at the factory. And their hope is that those bacteria will change the bacteria in their gut. It doesn't really work. Researchers have looked at people just in day-to-day -day life and found that adding yogurt to your life doesn't really have the health benefits that people had hoped for. And specifically, let's say a person took an antibiotic. You wiped out all the bacteria in your gut, and now you want to repopulate it. The yogurt doesn't help there either. Uh, it really doesn't help you repopulate healthy bacteria at all. So I would suggest not bothering with it. Um, the, the Part of the reason is, is that you're exposed to bacteria all the time, and the quantity normally in your gut is so large compared to the tiny little dose in the yogurt that it just really, really doesn't do much. Uh, at all. So uh, I wouldn't bother with them as supplements and I wouldn't bother with them as yogurt. How about that? Um, Moj is wondering whether cottage cheese is more protective than uh, regular milk. I kind of feel like we've addressed that a little bit. Yeah, we have. Um, in in the, the study that, that just came out, it looked like cheese uh, was not in as bad a category as, as milk, but that's probably because there are many fewer studies and more confounded by socioeconomic status. All right. So we have a very smart and intent uh, examining me by the name of Matt, who is like, well, OK, Dr. Barnard just said that cheese has a ton of sodium in it. That's not exactly doing my bones any favors. But now I'm wondering, well, what about the butter that I'm eating? That's got salt in it, too. Is butter as bad as cheese, in your opinion? Uh, as bad or worse, I mean, butter is basically solid fat, um, and the fat is, is saturated fat is, is what really makes up for it. Uh, with cheese, it's about 70% fat, mostly saturated fat. They're both very salty. Uh, cheese probably slightly higher in salt. Uh, there are, there, there's a lot of sodium, quite a lot of sodium in butter as well, and you don't need either one. You're better off without them. All right. Stop me, Dr. Barnard, if you have heard this debate before. Raw dairy is way healthier than pasteurized dairy. So this one comes to us from a viewer by the name of Bon Summers. Says, raw dairy is key. I avoid pasteurized dairy because of congestivity from pasteurized dairy. Also, with raw milk, I don't refrigerate it. I let, the, I let it culture ferment at ambient room temperature. The milk can then be drunken from fresh through, I'll say, usually within a week or two. Oh, boy. All right, so let's talk about there. I by no means am an expert on raw dairy or otherwise, but uh, yeah, what's your take on this? Raw dairy, a better option? Terrible option. Don't go near it. Um, and the reason is microbi uh, uh, microbial contamination is huge in raw dairy. This is something that kills people. 
I'm talking about Campylobacter infections, Salmonella, Listeria, E. coli, things that won't quit, um, things that have been shown to be fatal over and over and over again. I wouldn't go near it. Um, keep in mind, you're not designed to be drinking milk anyway. Uh, milk is designed, if I can put it that way, by nature for a calf. And even the calf stops drinking milk pretty soon when the calf is big enough to graze. Weaning has its role and mother nature came up with weaning for a reason um, because you don't need the fat and the estrogens and all the stuff that's in it. If you take that milk and instead of having a calf drink it, you're gonna let it sit around and accumulate toxic bacteria and then drink it, you're really taking a risk. Um, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are very strong on this as well, saying they, they will report all of the mortality and morbidity that comes from raw milk. I wouldn't go near it. All right, man. And I feel like there's still a big old elephant sitting in this room that we need to address here too, is the fact that not only here is raw milk not pasteurized, which would kill off a lot of the bacteria you were just talking about, but then leaving it out for a week or two to culture. Um, does that increase the risk? I mean, I know that we don't have a Petri dish or we're not in a lab at the moment, but just my lay perspective, I have some concerns about doing that. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's really a risky thing to do. Make sure you're well insured and don't give to your kids. <laughs> Make sure that you're well insured. Oh, God, I love it. Okay, uh, let's take a question from Anne. Uh, who's wondering whether milk can cause calcified arteries. She writes in that my mom, who has eaten well all of her life and walked daily, would drink a glass of milk every day. She never had osteoporosis, but she did get calcified arteries. I'm wondering whether that could have anything to do with her milk consumption. Is there a connection between calcification of arteries and the calcium that's found in dairy? Well, the dairy products, the, the biggest problem is that they're very, very high in saturated fat. That's the bad fat. Um, it gets its name bad fat because it's um, the kind that causes your body to make more cholesterol. And so for, for dairy products, most of the, the fat is the form bad fat. You consume dairy products, whole dairy products, milk, butter, cheese, and your cholesterol level tends to go up. The cholesterol particles are what irritate the artery wall, and that's what leads to these growing blockages. Dairy products don't have just bad fat, though they also have cholesterol itself. Uh, and when milk is turned into cheese, the fat is and the cholesterol is concentrated. And then salt is added, which raises your blood pressure. And as your blood pressure goes up incrementally, even small amounts cause the atherosclerosis to accelerate. So dairy products are really pushing things in exactly the wrong direction. All right, let's stick with calcium for a second. Take a question from Marlon, who's wondering whether the calcium carbonate that's found in something like almond milk is healthy or not. Oh, calcium, it's, it's added just as a supplement, just so that, because people are used to having their, their milk beverage as a source of calcium, whether it's cow's milk or almond milk or something else. And it's perfectly fine. The, the calcium carbonate that is added to some of these products is basically the same as the calcium supplement you would get in a pill form. Perfectly fine. Viv, is non-fat Greek yogurt a healthier option? No, uh, not really. Um, um, Greek yogurt has uh, a nice reputation because a person would rather be in Greece than in New Jersey. Um, but the fact of the matter, sorry everybody in New Jersey, um, but the fact of the matter is romance doesn't make health. Um, it's, it's a, uh, it, the, the difference is that they strain out some of the whey um, the whey is the liquid part that's got the lactose in it and the whey proteins, and that's removed. And that leaves the, the, um, 
the result a little more of a buttery kind of flavor, uh, but healthier, no. It's, it's still uh, a dairy product that has dairy proteins in it. It's got a certain amount of dairy fat, which they try to remove some of it. And it's um, not something that you need at all. Let's continue our dairy bonanza here with a question from Moj. She was wondering whether milk is good for menopausal women since it contains estrogen. You know, it's a great question. A lot of people are not aware of this, but cows are impregnated every year on a dairy because they have to be pregnant and give birth in order for the dairy, in order for the, the milk to be produced. Um, and so they're milked annually. And then when the next pregnancy arrives, they are still milked well into that pregnancy. A pregnant cow makes a lot of estrogen and it gets into her milk. It's specifically called estradiol and it's an exact match for yours. So uh, that recent, or that got on people's radar, first of all, because estradiol causes cancer. We've known for a long time that women who have extra estradiol in their blood because their body makes it, they're at higher risk for breast cancer compared to other women. And, and we've seen this now with milk consumption, that you're consuming the estradiol in milk, and that's also associated with higher risk for breast cancer. So you might think, well, at menopause, your body isn't making the estrogens anymore. And if you got hot flashes as a result, maybe milk would help and treat them. Doesn't seem to work. When researchers have looked at it, there doesn't seem to be any benefit from it. But um, in case you were snoozing, when our study came out showing a really good effect, uh, on hot flashes, that came from three things in combination. Avoiding animal products, uh, also keeping oils really low, and having a half a cup of soybeans every day, mature soybeans. And that combination, because of the isoflavones in the soy, which are much safer than the estradiol, uh, they don't cause cancer, they reduce cancer risk. That combination reduced moderate to severe hot flashes by about 88%. So if you've got hot flashes, if they're bothering you, just give this a try. It takes, it, for some people to get an effect in the first week, for others it takes four or five weeks to, to kick in. All right, and uh, let's grab another question from Viv here, who's really just poor thing, hung up on Greek yogurt today. Um, now we're talking about estrogen, and Viv is wondering whether perhaps there could be less estrogen in Greek yogurt just because of the manufacturing process. Um, Probably not. I mean, the estradiol doesn't really leave with the whey. When you make Greek yogurt, you're taking away the whey, which is the liquid that has the, the, the whey proteins and, and some of the lactose in it and so forth. When you're taking that away, you're not really removing the estrogen. The estrogen mostly sticks with the fat. Um, so it's in the fatty products. If you remove all the fat, that will reduce the estrogen. So. A question from Rack, who's wondering whether overdoing it with calcium supplements could potentially cause gallstones. What do we know about that? Oh, great question. You know, a lot of people have gallstones. The ingredient number one of, a, of gallstones is cholesterol. So a high cholesterol level gives you heart problems, but it can also lead to gallstones, particularly when the, the bile is really concentrated. Um, however, there's a role for calcium there too. Calcium seems to sort of provide the nidus where the, the cholesterol sort of uh, accumulates with it. Um, does that mean that a high calcium diet is going to make you more likely to have uh, stones. That is not so clear. Uh, but theoretically, you could imagine that calcium and cholesterol both could contribute. 
And let's go back to the butter conversation here momentarily. Take a question from Cynthia, who was wondering how much healthier these plant-based butters are compared to traditional butter, Dr. Barnard. Oh, great. Depends entirely on what how, on how they simulated butter. If, for example, they decided they were going to make the, the butter out of palm oil. Well, palm oil might be marginally better than butter, but it's still mostly saturated fat and it's going to raise your cholesterol level. If they use canola oil, it has a more, uh, it has a buttery kind of texture, but much less saturated fat. So you would think, at least from your heart standpoint, that's going to be a better choice. Read the label, look at the types of ingredients they have, palm oil, coconut oil, bad, other oils, better. Um, also look at the nutrition facts. It'll say total fat, it'll give you saturated fat, and that saturated fat, that's the one you want to be as close to zero as possible because it's linked to high cholesterol and it's linked to Alzheimer's disease. All right, let's take an interesting question. I'm not sure that we've done this angle before. This one comes to us from Kay, who's wondering about casein versus lactose intolerance. Kay writes, I'm surprised that casein hasn't been addressed yet. I believe as many people are casein intolerant as are lactose allergic. That's the problem with intolerances is that these symptoms don't smack you in the face like allergies. So people go on believing that they tolerate dairy because they aren't getting a lactose stomach ache. Even with the symptoms that people have, they aren't often noticed uh, because they're normal, they're inconvenient, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, um, not to make light of this, I just wanted to truncate it here. Kay's question, bottom line is, what is the difference between casein and lactose intolerance? What What is the difference there? It, it's, a, it's actually a great question, a very sophisticated question. And, and, and the thrust of the question is exactly right. Lactose is a sugar. Casein is a protein. And when you have a glass of milk, it's got both in it. And so for a lot of folks, uh, particularly people of color, uh, you drink a glass of milk and a couple hours later, you are in the bathroom. You are either, you know, well, you, because of lactose intolerance, you don't have the enzymes that break apart the lactose. And so that sugar is now going down into your digestive tract causing diarrhea and pain and, and, and so forth. That's a very, very common condition. Um, so you'll find people who then uh, will use a lactose-free milk. Uh, it, it's like lactate. It's still cow's milk, but it has an enzyme that breaks the lactose apart. And they find, they feel, they still feel sick. And the doctor says, well, you must be a hypochondriac because it's, there's no lactose in your milk. What's the problem? They could be reacting to the dairy proteins. Um, so as the questioner says, casein and, and other dairy proteins too can cause reactions of a wide variety of kinds. You, you can be just flat out allergic to them and they can cause digestive upsets of various kinds. So the thing to do, leave it out completely. And if you go to soy milk, if you go to rice milk, if you go to oat milk, if you go to almond milk, they don't have lactose. They also don't have casein. They don't have either one. So they're going to be much more, much more tolerable. All right. And let's wrap up. Maybe you can just comment on this uh, that was dropped into the chat here by James, who says, we we're talking about fat earlier in the show. And, and James says, I think that saturated fat is the healthiest fat, as it's also the least likely to be damaged by oxidation. Now, Dr. Barnard, we know that cheese, dairy, I mean, we're talking about a saturated fat bomb. So to James's point that saturated fat is the healthiest fat, what would you say to that? 
Okay, uh, the, the, the good part of what he's saying is that other kinds of fats, including things like omega-3s and, and, and other polyunsaturated fats, they're pretty fragile. When I say fragile, that molecule, that fat molecule, if you could look at it under a powerful microscope, it's a string of carbon atoms all put together and then it's saturated with hydrogen atoms around it. If it's unsaturated because you've removed some of the hydrogens, if you remove one hydrogen pair, it's called monounsaturated. If you remove a lot of hydrogen pairs, it's now polyunsaturated. That's where the names come from. So what if I have one that's got a lot of those hydrogen atoms removed? Suddenly, it's more unstable. And these fats, as they're circulating around in your blood, their instability causes free radicals to form. That's what he's thinking about. So those free radicals contribute to aging processes. They contribute to heart disease, all kinds of issues. So saturated fat is sort of the nutritional equivalent of concrete. It's there, it doesn't have the, any of these hydrogen atoms missing, so it's not gonna cause free, radical, uh, free radicals to form. That's also why its shelf life is much, much longer. However, in your body it does something else, which is it turns on your cholesterol machinery. So if you eat the saturated fat thinking, great, I won't be producing free radicals, you got a bigger problem, which is your cholesterol levels going up and your risk of Alzheimer's is going up. What's the answer? Don't eat either one. Um, you don't have any nutritional requirement for saturated fat at all, zero. Skip it. Dairy is the number one source, meat is the number two source, and the tropical oils like palm oil and coconut oil, they have it too. You don't need those, you're better off without them. But the other vegetable oils, you do need traces of them, tiny amounts, and the traces that are in vegetables, or in beans, or even the tiny traces that are in fruits, those are the traces your body needs. If you have some chia seeds or the occasional walnut or almond, that adds to it, fair enough. But you don't need to overdo it with them either. A trace is all you need. If we did not get to your question today, have no fear. We will do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. And if you're watching this on demand and weren't able to join us live, that's cool too. Keep posting your questions. We're going to do the same. We do look at each and every one that comes in and do our best to get you the answer uh, at the appropriate time. And Dr. Barnard also wanted to mention that today's episode of The Exam Room Live has been powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. You know, our friends there, they support organizations just like the Physicians Com Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. And you can visit them online right now. You see the web address on your screen, gregoryriderfund.org. That's Gregory Ryder spelled R-E-I-T-E-R fund.org. Go there, see what Allison Mahoney and the crew are up to. Sign up for their newsletter. Just see all the great work that they're doing, including keeping this very show going. Could not be doing this without them. They mean the world to us, Dr. Barnard. You know, Greg had such a warm heart and was such a friend to animals in so many ways. And Allison Mahoney has carried that forward just in the most beautiful possible way, uh, supporting this broadcast and supporting so many other important causes. So thank you, Allison. So there you have it. Best case scenario, you have a little bit of protection depending on the kind of dairy you're consuming from fracturing your hip. Worst case scenario, you see an increased risk of fractures, but those two things, even if you wanna look at it in the most simplistic way, that they kind of cancel each other out and there's a neutral effect when it comes to bone health and dairy, or at least the risk of fractures and dairy, 
And then you have to couple in also all of the other potential harmful effects that dairy can pose to you. Well, it still seems like the better play just to take dairy off of your plate, doesn't it? Yeah, it does not do the body good. We've seen that time and time and time again. We're talking about a study here of nearly a half million people. So you do what you feel is best for your health, but this is another opportunity to look at data and a lot of it to draw your own conclusions. And there's a link to the study right now in the episode notes. Don't forget coming up on November 7th, you wanna talk about doing something that'll do a body good. How about joining us for the exam room live and in person? A night of inspiration, of hope, and a night to honor the Esselstyn family. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn will be there. Rip Esselstyn will be there. Anne and Jane Esselstyn will be there. This is really one of the first families for nutrition who have really revolutionized the way we look at preventative medicine, at lifestyle medicine, how much diet can play a role in our risk of developing some of the deadliest diseases known to man, these chronic diseases that kill millions and millions and millions of us every single year. And the Esselstyn family has been banging the drum now for decades saying it does not have to be this way. And we would love to honor their contributions on November 7th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., the exam room live and in person as we celebrate their legacy and more than 15 million downloads of the exam room podcast, more than 100 million streams now on YouTube. And we would love it if you could join us to celebrate and honor their legacy at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. Tickets available right now, pcrm.org slash events or click that link in the episode notes. We do hope to see you there. I want to take a second to say thank you to an exam roomie who wrote one of the nicest reviews I've ever read on Apple Podcasts. And this is really one of the best ways that you right now can help us get this message to people who are in dire need of improving their health and a little bit of inspiration and motivation to keep going. That's to follow the show, on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your shows. Do that and then also leave a five-star rating and even a nice review like this one, which really just touched the bottom of my heart. It says, if you ever feel at all disappointed with the state of the world and the other podcasts in your queue will only make you feel worse, the Exam Room Podcast gives actionable information in each and every episode that anyone can take to start making lives better today. I always feel much better after listening. Further, if I listen to the show for about 10 minutes before going to lunch, I know I'm going to eat the healthiest lunch I possibly can. Listening to the show is actually an important component of my own eating habits. If I ever feel like eating complete garbage at lunch or after work, I know that I am going to feel much better if I listen to Chuck for just a few minutes. I love this show. Please keep it going. Well, you absolutely have my word that this show is going to continue on. And for that very reason, because we do live in a world where we are surrounded by junk food and temptation is at every single turn and it can take a lot 
on our bad days to not give in. I mean, heck, it can take a lot on a good day not to give in to that temptation, but to know that this show plays even a small role in helping to keep you on track and build a healthier foundation so that you can continue to live a healthier life. That means the world to me. So thank you so very much to the exam roomie who left that review. You have my word. This show is going to keep chugging right along, baby. We got a lot of lives to touch. We got a lot more information to share. And if you would like to share your story, go ahead. Apple, Spotify, when you subscribe or follow and leave that five-star rating, tell us a little bit about how the exam room has helped to improve your health or your own health transformation, how a plant-based diet is helping you along the way. Go ahead and do that. And let's keep the show growing so that we can change even more lives in the future. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and proving that milk, once again, does not really do a body good. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.